to the Learning and Development Podcast. I'm David James from Loop, and each episode I chat with guests about what lights them up in the world of people development. In this episode, I'm speaking with Frank W. Spencer about strategic foresight and the work we did on this together at Disney. But before we get into it, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do give us a five-star rating on your podcast app of choice to help others to find us. And thank you if you've done so already. Now, let's get into it. Frank, welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. David, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, Now, Frank, we worked together at Disney uh, on the International Strategic Foresight Project in London and in Burbank over a couple of years, if I remember rightly. Um, Perhaps we should start off by explaining to the listener what strategic foresight is. Yeah, that's right. We did get the uh, opportunity and the privilege to work together. It was like uh, we call those days the UN of foresight because we gathered people from all over you know, Europe and mm-hmm. the Middle East. And so it was, uh, those were great meetings, heady days. Um, but yeah, so we were brought in, of course, by Walt Disney International um, to embed foresight. And uh, strategic foresight is a discipline that's been around for a hundred plus years. People don't realize that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, recently it has gotten to be much more well-known in most big companies now and smaller companies have uh, foresight from Airbnb and Uber to you know all of your big companies like Disney and Marriott and GMI and all kinds of companies. And so foresight really is a way for people to leverage the future. As a matter of fact, when people hear about futures thinking or foresight, they often think that it's a discipline that's about thinking about the future 10, 20 years out or however far they're comfortable with. And then when those 10 or 20 years pass, let's see if, you know, we were right. Yeah. And that would be a useless exercise, mm-hmm. right? So it's really about how do we leverage what's emerging, what's on the horizon, what's appearing, what's coming, technology, social change, environmental, economic, political change. And then how do we alter our actions and our strategies and our learning and development uh, processes and operations today mm-hmm. to be able to take advantage of, to both avoid the threats and the risks, but also more importantly, to take advantage of transformation and, and to uh, do things differently so that we will be ready for whatever future unfolds, that we become adaptive, mm. resilient, and transformative. Yeah, and, uh, and, and I, um, of course I concur. And, and having been on the other side of the table, um, when, when you guys first came in and started talking about this stuff, my head went to, and I think a lot of people did, are oh, we predicting the future? And it's right. not until you're doing the work that you realize that you're really not that 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 it is uh, that these are different ways of imagining futures that you wouldn't possibly have even considered before, and then considering the uh, the implications and the ramifications of that, so that you, as an organisation and a group of people, you you uh, I suppose you foster this uh, this this adaptability as well as not being scared. And, and I suppose, and also, you know, it's not just about adaptability, but it's 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 smashing um, uh, rigidity, uh, which can lay within organisations. Anybody, who, you know, you know, the phrases that that are like, um, uh, oh, we've we've always done things like that. I mean, it can become endemic, and and whether it's culture or practices or ways of thinking, you know, that's that's what is being. Uh, uh, grown, challenged, and uh, and built upon. Am I am I right? Oh, you're a hundred percent right. And uh, we often use the phrase because I heard you use a phrase that's famous. We often tell people it's one of our catchphrases now. Mm. If you t- if you whisper to yourself, or maybe sometimes go into the bathroom at work and shout in the stall to yourself, <laughs> "There's got to be a better way." Yeah. Um, then you're already on the the journey to thinking about the future and foresight correctly. You brought up a very important point. And that is that foresight, uh, another, you know, uh, mistake that people make, and it's, you know, it's understandable, especially in our short term, linear, um, serve me right now, you know, this, Mm. it has to happen right now, culture that we have had for a long time, when in reality, we know that's not how things really work. That's not how nature works. That's not how Mm. processes work. People are messy. They don't work that way. Um, We would like to think that foresight and futures thinking is about predicting but it's the furthest thing from it. It's really about mapping the future, as you said, uh, to be less rigid, to be flexible, to be adaptive, to be resilient. And I like to add in, because I think it's one of the most important points, to be transformative. Because again, mm. that's how the real world works. It transforms, it morphs, it changes. So why are we building our organizations to be, I want to what, what happens today to happen 90 years from now when we know that's not how the world works. Yeah. Um, so this skill of foresight 
um, Harvard Business Review, I think it was over 10 years ago, listed it as one of the top three skills that leaders and really everybody should have in an organization. Organizations need to future empower their employees from the top down to think this way. And if they did, and if they do, um, they will have a workforce and they will have uh, human capital and they will have people, mm-hmm. most importantly, people that are able to meet whatever um, is coming up that will be able to you know, lay hold of new opportunities, not to predict the future, but really to create the future and to make it happen, to have agency. Mm. And, and a lot of this might sound fanciful if this is, if, uh, if this is new to, to the listener. Uh, but but this is what we'll unpack as we uh, as we go through this uh, this podcast. It's all right. about what what we did together, what you do for other organisations, and start laying this out as uh, as something that uh, that that is certainly um, seen as attainable. Um, but let's let's talk about uh, the the work that um, that that we did together at uh, Disney um, because there was a there was an acknowledgement that things um, were changing uh, quickly in the outside world, and that the company needed to ensure that it remained relevant. From your perspective, uh, and you, you, you were involved in uh, in conversations at a high level that uh, that that I certainly weren't. Um, what was Disney trying to achieve back then? I mean, I think the the main thing that Disney was trying to achieve back then is is our workforce really ready? You know, it's, it's funny. There's actually been a case study that has been released, and and David, you know, your listeners are more than welcome to this case study. It was published in a, about futures thinking and organizational development um, by Paul Grave. And uh, we have one of the chapters on there that's about this exact thing that we're talking about, what happened at Disney over that period of time. And uh, to our knowledge, um, that work that was actually done uh, was still the largest foresight and futures competency building working inside any Fortune 100, you know, to, that in existence today. Um, so what they were really trying to achieve originally when we were brought in, um, Bill Fru, who was, uh, you know, the head of um, uh, uh, the work at that time at Disney, mm-hmm. um, said, look, what we really want to do is we want to uh, accomplish this idea of having interns really be able to tell us, you know, what's unfolding, mm-hmm. what, 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 what's in the minds of the youth. <laughs> and then we want to really teach our employees how to use iPads. Mm-hmm. I, that's exactly you know what was said, which was was funny, but you know it's funny now, but it made a lot of sense then. Yeah. And so we said, look, we can do all that, and we can do much, much more because what you really need is a future ready workforce. Mm. And so this work was really born out of a piece of work that started even before we got there, um, the future workforce or the workforce of the future work that was happening. And so what we were able to do, piggyback off of that, and then eventually morph that was to really build talent that was ready for whatever future would come. Mm. Um, they were looking at, you know, what technologies would we use? What ways do we need to work? Who do we need to hire? What needs to happen in, in terms of the workforce there? So that's that was the main thrust of the work that happened. And I'm so glad that you also mentioned, I know we're going to get into this more, that of course it wasn't just about some fun exercises to get people to think about, you know, crazy futures or imaginative futures. It's methodologies, it's tools, it's skills that are embedded. Um, and to be able to teach, you know, people across the, you know, like I said earlier, across Europe, across the Middle East, um, I think there was eventually uh, 45 countries involved in the work that we did there. Um, how to you know how to use this skill, this method, in this field um, to accomplish those those goals? Mm. And of course, uh, in the uh, the case study that you mentioned, um, uh, you, you talk about Andy Bird, who at the time was uh, was uh, I think it was with, I think it was the chairman of the the entire organisation. He certainly he head, like headed right. up yeah. Walt Disney International, which was everything that's outside right. of uh, of the US. So it had the highest level uh, of backing. Um, and I and I remember that. Um, that as well as the, as you say, we 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 went through um, the the exercises, and the we, we practiced the tools, the techniques, we developed our scenarios. Uh, but I, but I remember being in uh, in meetings and and asking the question. So so to what extent do we think that three D printing is going to be a threat to our consumer products business? And people right. looking and thinking wow where's this question come from and it's not because i was some kind of genius it's because we'd done the scenario planning That's uh, right. and, you know and 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 you know it's what what i found was that if you're in the room and you're asking those questions then you're doing the organization an enormous favor now it's you know it's because we, we're at risk of disruption i mean the Walt disney company was disrupted while i was there and i was there eight years 
I always give the uh, the example that uh, that when I joined during my induction, uh, Home Entertainment were talking about um, the, the 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 properties that they had. They had Lost and Desperate Housewives, uh, Disney's Vault, uh, and all of that stuff meant that that Home Entertainment was the most profitable part of the Walt Disney Company. But when I left in 2014, due to streaming, due to YouTube, uh, and <laughs> consumers choosing non-linear um, uh, channels for, for consuming. It was actually the least profitable division within the Walt Disney Company. And yeah. every single part of the business was shaken up in some kind of way and required adaptation, whether that was the way that it uh, dealt with consumers, whether it dealt with partners, whether uh, it was adapting to, to different media uh, and other trends. And so so it, it's sometimes it's useful looking at a, a, you know, um, a situation through, through a lens and saying during that period, there was enormous transformation now. The Walt Disney Company came out of that because it has huge backing. It's got a load of cash and by our acquisition of Star Wars, Marvel and all of that great stuff, it, right. it, it was able to, to ride the storm of both the financial crash and, you know, and that level of transformation. But as you've said, not every organization is going to have that level of backing. So you got, it's going to require some foresight. And we've seen enough companies go to the wall in the last two or three years, not just because of COVID, but because they've not been able to adapt. I mean, is that something that uh, that, that you've seen? Oh, yeah, uh, tremendously. You know, as a matter of fact, I was going to, of course, it's inevitable that we bring up the pandemic during our uh, time <laughs> together today. Um, and a lot of people early on a, a year and a half ago were immediately asking us is like, well, all of the work, that, all of the wonderful work that you guys have done over the years, I've been doing this work for 20 years now. But all the work that, you know, your organization has done over the last 10 plus years, is it all out the drain now? And the truth of the matter is, it's the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. The pandemic has sped up every trend yeah. and everything that people were talking about. So they're not gone. They're actually exacerbated. Mm -hmm. And uh, so all of these companies that were thinking, oh, autonomous driving is coming. And, uh, and you know, now, you know, suddenly there was talk at early in the pandemic. Well, nobody's going to want to get in a car anymore, you know, with a driver or somebody from Uber or especially into an autonomous vehicle. And now today, you know, just this past week, you've got, I think, two or three trucking companies who are looking for drivers. Yeah. And of course, you know, the employment is low. And so now they're saying like, well, if we can't find drivers, we'll just go completely autonomous. Yeah. As a matter of fact, a lot of people don't really realize this, but, um, and I live in Florida here in the United States and our state has very lax autonomous driving laws. Hmm. As a matter of fact, so much so that category five, which is the highest that you could get, um, no driver, nobody required in the truck at all is actually allowed on the roads in Florida. Mm. People don't know that. Uh, they don't want to scare them. So a lot of times they'll put a driver in the car, but there's these vehicles are on the road already. It's happening, especially in trucking. Um, you know, so those things have just been exacerbated. You could go down the line from 3D printing, which you could think, wow, why that's a big deal in the pandemic to, you know, I know we're going to hit on some trends here today, educational trends. And what about the working from home and the way the workforce is changing and, and organizational models are changing and all of that. So um, all of those things have, have changed dramatically. As a matter of fact, I'm thinking about, I love that you brought up the example of when we were working and it seems like, you know, forever ago, but, you know, almost 10 years ago now. And the Walt Disney Company at the time was saying, well, what do we do about DVDs? Yeah. And today, DVDs, who, you know, some of your young audience members are probably thinking, what is it? Can you define DVD for me? You know, and uh, but, you know, literally the time we were like, are you kidding? Because, you know, YouTube and streaming and all this is already here. Of course, now Disney has a streaming service. They were late to the game. But of mm. course, you know, they're they're very it's successful it. at yeah. it. Nonetheless, <laughs> it doesn't matter almost in a way. Um, but this was 10 years ago when they were saying, should we think about influencers? Should we think about user generated content? Should we think they were questioning, should they? And now today it seems like a no brainer and yeah. it's sped up even more because of the pandemic. Right. Um, so, yes, you need to pay attention to these trends. And back then we were talking about, should we switch away from DVDs? Yes. And there were tons of scenarios written about it in Latin America and, of course, in Europe. And as you said, we'll get into scenario building here in just a minute, which is sort of the Super Bowl of foresight work. I know other fields use scenarios as well, but when scenario building is done really uh, uh, well, robust and rigorous, and as you said, you're sitting in the room and you're able to bring these things up, um, it's tremendous to be able to think about these disruptions and opportunities for the business. And uh, so, of course, if you don't have the cash of a Disney, 
um, uh, foresight, you know, is your resource and a way to be able to pivot quickly, um, but also to be ahead of the game. And you mentioned some of the trends here, and uh, and this is the part of the conversation, Frank. I think I've been looking forward to most because I remember you highlighting many emerging trends back in uh, 2012 and 2013 when we were working together that have actually become mainstream now, and they were really edge back then. I'll give examples such as the gig economy uh, we were talking about back then, AI we were talking about back then, and generation cohort, which I found fascinating. And you're going to have to correct me if I get this wrong, but that was uh, uh, about people um, not not aligning to to uh, to their peer groups due to age and their experience That's growing right. up, but much more around their their interests around their. Um, uh, their uh, political persuasion uh, and around the the concerns that they that they cared about, uh, such as the climate, um, uh, amongst amongst many other things that uh, that that have uh, have come to light and, as I say, become mainstream. I wonder now, Frank, can you tell us uh, about any trends that you're seeing now that we should be looking out for? Well, yeah, I I love that we have the chance to sit here, you and I, and to look back on those things and do a little bit of I told you so. <laughs> um, because, you know, in foresight, sometimes, um, you know, the leaders are like, you know, crossed arms and they're mm. like, ah, we'll wait and see. And it's like, that's defeating the whole purpose, um, especially if you're, you don't have the, the cash of a Disney to sort of, you know, create your own future in a way, or at least try to catch up. That doesn't mean that a big organization like that doesn't also get disrupted and find themselves behind the eight ball. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, so those came to pass. And what are we looking at today? I mean, there's so many things, but I was giving this uh, question a little bit of thought. And um, I know a lot of your audience too is in learning development and and, and uh, similar or related sister fields, you know. And so um, one of the things that I can't help bring to mind is this idea of educational pathways mm -hmm. and how much that's drastically changed. We were talking about it back then, but now, even today, and then couple it with the pandemic, um, thinking about what, you know, brick and mortar institutions are doing and how education has changed so drastically and how this has just exacerbated the need to see education differently. Mm -hmm. One thing this, you know, educators are talking about, and I was just, as a matter of fact, on a, um, uh, uh, a panel the other day with a bunch of people who are really looking only at education in terms of future thinking and foresight and their educators themselves. And they know that the brick and mortar institution has to undergo a dramatic shift, a dramatic transformation in order to remain relevant. And this idea of micro credentialing is mm -hmm. just going to pick up more and more and more steam, the stacking of skills. And um, right now we need people to, to understand that the real skill that they need is to be able to pivot on a dime. We need to be hiring people, not for the job description that, you know, that we put out for them, but for their ability to fulfill the next three job descriptions that are coming very quickly. So we need that kind of skill set. And if you couple that with like a purpose-driven economy and people saying, I want to work for, for purpose, I don't want to work for the same company for 40 years just to have a good position or a job, but I want to be able to fill purpose in life, whatever that purpose may be, when you couple those two things together, you get a very, very different workforce. Um, there's a lot of different trends we could talk about, but you know, I was just thinking about this idea of you saying um, generation cohort mm. and people, you know, not necessarily staying in their lane in their generations, but because especially um, of the digital environment and the virtual environment, being able to cross streams and really, um, you know, circle around or tribe around um, people who have similar interests rather than just their age cohorts. Um, and then if you couple that with this idea that's emerging right now called the metaverse, and um, this has you know, been making the news lately a lot, and really it's an old idea uh, with a new name, a new catchy, shiny name to it, um, but really having all of this virtual, augmented space, digital space, start to line up more so that there is one overarching metaverse where people are able to really live almost what might be known as digital life, physical and digital combined together. Um, not one versus the other, but these meshed integrated lives as that digital virtual space becomes more and more important all the time. And so this idea of a metaverse where people literally live inside that place, their nations are formed there, their tribes are formed there. The way they think about work is formed within this digital or metaverse space mm -hmm. is going to be highly important. And I can't leave this subject without at least saying one more um, idea, and that is anything anything to do around neuroscience or neuro mm. um, because we all already have heard a ton about 
uh, uh, neuroscience and how important it is to coaches and consultants, but of course, you know, in the actual field of science, and we're learning more about the brain, but we're just, uh, we're just scratching the surface, the tip of the iceberg with all of this, mm. um, because this idea of neuroscience being port important to entertainment, be important to healthcare, being important to um, workforce, you name the field, um, you're going to see more and more work around uh, discovery of cognition, um, but also using this idea of neuroscience and coupling that with the digital space, tremendous. And so keep your eye out on, on anything to do with that. And that's going to be an important part of your business, no matter what field you're in. Mm, wonderful. And uh, and Frank, from a, from a profession that loves its buzzwords, uh, Fidgetal has got is going to be a new one in the lexicon of uh, of learning and development. I'm going to be looking out for that one on uh, on learning and development LinkedIn posts. Uh, there there you go. On. There you go. <laughs> um, you're, look, you're welcome. No extra charge. <laughs> Um, I, what, I, what I remember is that uh, that during uh, the first day or the first morning of uh, a foresight, you'd be sharing these trends, and it, it and it was always mind blowing. Uh, and you kind of think that's the work, but of course that's the foundation of the work. If uh, again, if I if I remember rightly, because it was after that that we took a group of trends, we we mashed them together uh, in order to create scenarios, um, and it was and it was. Uh, taking those elements and then compounding them in in new and novel ways that that spurred imagination. Um, and again, if I remember rightly, we'd be looking at um, a scenario based on the merging of those of how things would improve from now, um, how things could get worse from now. So a dystopian view and what would happen if things then carried on as they were and just progressed. Now, if I remember rightly, um, that you said that the least likely of these was things carrying on as they are, which is, again, one of the main reasons that, uh, that, that people invest in strategic foresight. Um, I, I, as we talk now, one of the things that, uh, that really struck me was that in the group I was working in, uh, we were looking at the, uh, what was going to happen to the internet. And this was, you, you, you were presenting uh, trends uh, from the Arab Spring. We had, of course, uh, Obama was, uh, was, uh, was president. Um, uh, the Silicon Valley was still seen as the great hope uh, of how organizations will run and they were going to save humanity. And yeah. during the dystopian, well, doing dystopian um, scenarios, we were talking about um, you know uh, the, the internet being locked down. And it was really hard because you're kind of thinking from this utopian, uh, what looks like a very optimistic view, how are things going to go wrong? <laughs> and and quite likely, once you know, when, once there's data hacking, once uh, once it's revealed just how sinister, because uh, you know the great hack revealed how sinister uh, social media uh, and even search engines can be with regards to data. Then there's right. distrust. Then the the absolute opposite of Barack Obama comes into uh, into uh, to the White House. All of a sudden, dystopia looks a lot more like. Looked looked exactly what was happening uh, at yeah. the time. I I, right. I wonder there. You know, in I've just given you a load, a load of uh, a load of stuff there about about what we did um, uh, as far as uh, as, as yeah. making those trends into scenarios. But but uh, but I, I wonder if you could just shed some light there on. You know what 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 scenario building actually looks like, and maybe a comment on that. Oh, I I love this question, um, and I'm glad you brought this part up too because I think even in this part of the interview, if, if if your audience members aren't familiar with foresight, which is not, you know, wouldn't be shocking at all, hmm. um, because I still think it's um, often seen as a sexy skill um, and therefore doesn't get popularized in the way strategy building or innovation would be, even though it's an integral part of those um, pieces of work um, and really should guide them um, and doesn't get seen as the core um, skill that it really is recognized as once somebody latches onto it and says, why weren't we doing this the whole time? What are we crazy? Mm -hmm. um, uh, it, people can think, oh, so you're a trend hunter, you're a trend scouter, you're, you're, you're trend analyzing and, and such. And as you say, that's just the, the, the start of the work. Mm -hmm. Yes, trends are important. We often say, as a matter of fact, trends are like the lifeblood of the work of foresight, but they aren't the beating heart. Um, the beating heart really is, and you, your audience heard you say, um, we mashed all those trends together, which sort of sounds crazy, <laughs> um, but uh, it's a very important part of the work. So I just wanted to say really quickly that we had this faux 
um, equation that we use for strategic foresight. If people want to know what it is in its most basic form, it's research plus data mm -hmm. plus intuition plus creativity. Mm -hmm. So two of those sound qualitative which I know is like a curse word to people because qualitative, what do you want to, what are you supposed to do with that? Even though that could have mentioned that as one of the trends, people are understanding the, how important qualitative is and, and, and that we shouldn't live in just a quant world. And the other two research and data sound more quantitative, but all four of those elements are very, very important. None of them are fluffy. Um, and so when we look at these trends and we are, we're scouting for these trends, what needs to happen is we need to realize trends don't stay in isolation. You mentioned 3D printing, for instance, which now has become tremendous in terms of architecture and construction. That doesn't stay in isolation by itself from what's happening in virtual virtual building or, or, or the digital world. It doesn't stay in isolation from shifting uh, um, um, expectations around work or purpose. It doesn't stay in isolation from neuroscience and on and on and on. So in reality, in the real world, those things are converging, they're colliding the values that are shifting. And so the real work in foresight is really to get to that part where we start to understand how are these things converging and colliding and what patterns are they forming mm. and so i like to say and of course your audience gets the uh gets the privilege of being able to rewind this you know rewind it sounds like i'm in the 80s what am i talking <laughs> about and and and, uh, and uh and listen to this part again so they get to hear the definition repeatedly if they want to but patterns are emerging landscapes landscapes that's very important of change because trends are points mm. um but in reality we live in these big complex landscapes these worlds and so we really want to be able to identify these emerging landscapes, these shifting islands um, that it doesn't matter what industry you're in, they're going to impact you. And you could discount one trend or one value inside of this mashup or this collision of trends that are happening in the real world. And it still wouldn't dissolve you from the responsibility of the pattern, the landscape of change. So you could say, well, our industry doesn't care about 3D printing. And that was a part of that uh, landscape. Yes, but there's a hundred other trends and values in there that still hold that landscape together, much like a, a blockchain, for instance, that it, that you need to be paying attention to because it doesn't matter if you're in healthcare or whatever the, the case might be, that emerging landscape of change is going to disrupt and give opportunities to you. And then you mentioned the, the strategy, as the scenario piece, because we take multiple of these landscapes or islands and we're able to build alternative stories of the future out of them. And uh, in foresight, we have to look at multiple alternative features mm -hmm. because earlier you mentioned, and I love this part too, that we don't predict, but we do mm -hmm. something better. We map. Yeah. Um, even if you could predict, um, which everybody wants to be able to do, um, it makes you fragile. It makes you brittle to any other outside influence or anything that might come your way. Mm. As a matter of fact, we often tell clients today that your biggest disruptors, your biggest uh, opportunities, influencers are not coming from within your organization or, or that environment or your industry. They're coming from outside of it today. As a matter of fact, what does the word industry even mean anymore today when Amazon owns grocery stores and trucking industry and basically everybody, you know, Amazon's everybody's competitor, right? And so it breaks down this idea of industry altogether. And so we build these scenarios, multiple scenarios across what we call a cone of possibilities, mm -hmm. all the way from, as you mentioned, very dystopic, you know, of possible operating environments, five, 10, maybe 20 or 50 years out, all depending on the, the organization or the industry, um, over to um, more utopic and maybe multiple other archetypes in between. Sometimes it's three, as you mentioned, um, with other clients, we've done four or five of these. In reality, you could build hundreds of them because just like a butterfly's wing, you know, uh, flapping, there could be slight changes, there could be drastic changes that cause us as we go out in time to, to be more drastic of a change over time. But we can't do that. You can't build hundreds of these that would drive people crazy. So we want to be able to build a cone that reaches from one extreme to the other and some of the things in between. And then, as you mentioned, you know, it's like the straight line or what we often call the official future still is change. We still should know about that official future, um, that straight line. But it's probably the least likely because there's going to be changes that slightly swerve us from that straight line forward to ones that radically swerve us from the straight line forward. I mean, for instance, what if a pandemic were to happen um, or imagine. what if, you know, yeah, or what <laughs> imagine, right? Or what if, um, you know, uh, there were to be, um, you know, uh, what if 
England left um, uh, uh, the European Union? You know, what if that happened? What if you know? Hmm. Um, so these are are not necessarily the big things. Those wild cards or those black swans, as your audience might be familiar with some of those terms that we necessarily look at, but they're included in our scenarios as well. And then, as you said, when we're doing a really good job of world building, I like to use that term almost more in scenario, world building, because what's in a world is technology, yes, but it's the way people think and act and the values that they hold. Um, so we have to do value tracing and value recognition when we're building. Um, it's not just the trends. Um, we're thinking about uh, um, the environments that people will live in, what's there, what's not there, so that we can literally walk into these worlds that we've built where there's mm -hmm. characters and people, yes, yes, personas, but a whole fleshed out world and multiple of these, as you already mentioned, and we can do ethnography. We can walk around inside of these future spaces mm -hmm. as an ethnographer would in the real world, going into a drugstore or, you know, into a neighborhood and you know, checking off how people are living. We can go into these future worlds and say, oh, that's how this works. And that's how people are going to think. And this is how they're going to live. And yeah. nobody says that we've predicted it. We're not going to be perfectly right, but we're also not going to be wrong because mm. we built a multiplicity of these worlds. And we're going to pull from all of these worlds and put this into our strategy, into our innovation, our organizational development, our workforce, so that no matter what world eventually unfolds, we're ready for it. But as you probably already guessed, more importantly, that we have been able to co-create some of these worlds that we saw. We took advantage of them in advance so that we're not really worried about whether they unfold or not. We're gaining agency, we're anticipating what's emerging, and we're co-creating along with the future. And that's why this multiple world building is so important. Mm -hmm. And I love the way you started off our whole talk because you said, I went in the room, I had read the scenario, I built the scenario. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was able to say to everybody, well, what about 3D printing? And everybody mm -hmm. looks like you've got three heads, but yeah. that is the greatest thing that ever happened because you just told them something they weren't even thinking about. That came from that world building, which is so critical. So mm -hmm. thank you for giving us the opportunity to say it's not about trends, that's just the starting place. The beating heart really is in this mashing, this meshing of pattern making, sense making, uh, world building, um, and really being able to pull for them and then to pressure test our strategies, build new strategies from these worlds. Will the strategy we now have work in world A, B, C? Do we need to build new strategy? What innovations do we see in here that we weren't thinking of? All of these uh, uh, parts of our organization that we're very familiar with should be informed by our foresight work. It would supercharge it. As a matter of fact, I'll just end this. I've gone on a tirade here, but uh, <laughs> I'll end this part by saying that many times we've even gone in through design thinking. I know yeah. a lot of your audience probably knows design thinking or yeah. been design thinking workshops. And we have organizations say to us, we were doing design thinking. We loved it. It helped us in our organization. But once we put foresight together with our design thinking, it was like we were never doing design thinking. We supercharged our design thinking. Because when you think about it, design thinking is about, you know, how do we find empathy? And what does the customer want? And how do we build these designs? But when you start thinking about future customers, future ancestors, future generations, um, consumers of the next five, three, five, 10, 15 years, and bringing that back into our design thinking work, just think about the possibilities. Yeah, yeah, so that's, that's wonderful. Now, there's a lot of terminology there that uh, that might have uh, had some people lost, but I'll, I'll say directly to the listener, there is new uh, um, terminology here because this is this is a new discipline. If you're unfamiliar with this, it's because it's because it's something not only are you perhaps not exposed to, but something that you that you should um, uh, you should be exposed uh, some more to. But I wonder to bring it to life. Uh, for the listener, uh, Frank, uh, what are some of the more mem uh, memorable scenarios that uh, that you've seen created, either because these were incredibly imaginative or perhaps uncanny? I don't know, David, if these are the best questions I've ever got or just give me the opportunity to talk about things I love. I guess it's the same <laughs> thing, right? It's the same thing. Um, yes, because, you know, uh, we've done a lot of scenario work over the years. And I will say even in the past year and a half, pandemic time, the, 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 the after times, you know, there was the before times when we could meet and you know, face to face and now the after times. Um, we've done more scenario work in, in a year and a half than we've ever done in, in any other year and a half uh, previously. You can imagine why companies are like, where is this going? You know, what's happening? <laughs> so we've been in high demand. We were in high demand before, but I mean, it's just gone into uh, 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 overdrive. And a lot of that has been scenario work. Yeah. So I can even just quote the last several years, um, and even right before the pandemic, working in the Middle East, um, doing a lot of good scenario work for educational institutions in the Middle East, 
really talking about where education is going. And I talked about a little bit of that before, but um, what is the uh, student um, education relationship look like? And um, a, a radical change in how students really own their own education, flip that model around. Um, as a matter of fact, some of these um, institutions in the Middle East now, because of the scenario work that we did, um, some of it proprietary, of course, hmm. um, are able to uh, uh, now uh, say that they changed the way that they're graduating students um, because the scenarios actually talked about students forming, um, being graduating with businesses instead of degrees hmm. or graduating with entrepreneurial ideas instead of degrees. So they still got the degree. Um, but the more important thing is becoming, do I have the idea? Do I have a job placement? Do And it might sound like trade school, but we're talking about at a higher level, right? Yeah. Um, we were able to work with this past uh, uh, two years with one of the largest um, uh, agricultural and food manufacturing producers in the world. And um, they did, uh, believe it or not, a lot of their scenarios really were around um, empathy mm. and um, the way consumers think about well-being and uh, happiness and joy. And are these food experiences really bringing them social um, uh, social equity and social change? So you wouldn't think that an agriculture company would be thinking about that. They would say, oh, Frank and, you know, Kedge in the future school, just help um, me to think about, you know, what the future of food is like. But that was a big part of it. So, yes, we did agriculture with them and where is it going and planters and growers and fertilizers and all this good stuff, but it really included a lot about well-being of communities yeah. and food being the nexus or the locus of how a community is built, um, the metric that it was built upon, which was fascinating work. Mm. Um, and then being able to work recently with um, a large transportation company in Santiago, Chile. And if you know what's been going on in Chile in the past several years, it's one of the uh, most awesome stories for me, at least in the world right now, because um, the Pineda government was finally, you know, toppled and uh, or, or, or collapsed, I guess you would say. And they had the protests and the riots in 2019, and they've called for a new constitution writing to take their democracy to the next level. Mm -hmm. And just recently in the last several uh, weeks and months, they've appointed this council to build a new constitution. And um, it's the first time ever that they've had the indigenous community um, head the, the governmental writing of constitutional laws and, 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 and bylaws and policies. So um, we're able to do a lot of work with them that in the midst of that work and their um, scenarios, it's a transportation company, a big transportation company um, in Santiago. They were really focused on how do we not just move people physically? But how do we accelerate mobility socially, broad-based prosperity, the way we're connecting people? Is it satisfying what happened, what the riots were about, where people felt like they weren't connected? As a matter of fact, um, before we got there, and one of the big things that happened within the protests were people went into the metro stations and burnt the metro stations down because they really felt like a 1% raise uh, uh, in, in their fares and those kinds of things were really a part of this social in, uh, inequality. Hmm. Um, and so um, now they're thinking about how do we not just move people, but be seen as uh, purveyors and mobilizers of social equality and connection to greater lifestyles and communities that have been on the periphery. Hmm. And so this is what a lot of that scenario work has done. Um, yes, again, we've talked specifically in the scenarios about what, you know, multimodal transportation and, you know, what, what will that look like and how do you include the digital aspect and data, uh, you know, capture. But um, I mentioned those other parts because it's the part of scenarios that people th don't think about when they go in that turn out to be some of the most dynamic parts of the scenario work. Mm, yeah, fascinating, Frank. And such, yeah. such a diverse range there. I mean, everything that you've just talked about. Is going, to be, is going to be disrupted. I mean, the agriculture and food, my God, I we've got no choice. We've got no choice. It's got to, it's got to advance and, yeah. uh, and change. So, Well, you know, uh, I, so I, 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 not to interrupt, but it's like one whole scenario for that company hmm. was about, and remember, again, we built multiple scenarios. One whole world, I should say, I told you world building earlier. <laughs> one whole world was really about um, a city 
that was built on the basis of food instead of being built from the ground up on the basis of their infrastructure or an economic model, as we might imagine today. So instead, the city said, wait a second, we've done all of this research, and it turns out that if we build food cultures as the basis of our city and food forests and the way that we, you know, our buildings are going to be built around green, um, green, not just green energy, but agriculture um, and, and the landscape for agriculture. And uh, they franchised that model to other cities and cities around the world started becoming these food focus or food locus cities. So that might sound pretty far-fetched, but embedded in there were all of these ideas of how agriculture could be looked at differently and vertical farming and all of that mm-hmm. stuff, right? Food forests on the outskirts of the cities and how agriculture was tr- uh, uh, um, treated quite differently. But since that time, there's a city in Mexico that's actually based their new city building on agriculture and um, and on food. Yeah, wonderful. I mean, it, it takes me back uh, to... Uh, to something that you said uh, all those years ago about um, uh, instead of people working for the city, have the cities working for the people. What? Look at that. It did stick, you right? Remember, you, you remember. <laughs> you remember. That's right. Yeah, it does. I and mean, that's one of my famous quotes around the world now, but after mm. speaking all over the place, you know, I love to say that, that we built cities where we have to get up every morning and go serve them. Mm. And really that's a big change that's going on too, is um, when you see indigenous knowledge, new ways of knowing, um, uh, knowing that we're not separated from the larger ecosystem, that we're a part of nature and that we've got to uh, reframe um, how humanity lives in our environment. Um, we have to look at the city very differently. Now, you mentioned uh, black swans earlier, um, and uh, which describe uh, unforeseen events, typically with extreme consequences. Well, what does that remind me of? Um, uh, in what ways have you seen organizations use strategic foresight to either scenario plan for the last 18 months, so to have anticipated this in some ways, or respond? You know, I can't help but start when you ask that question to think about COVID and how um, unaware we were taken by this idea of a pandemic, even though governments around the world, you mentioned uh, Obama, the Obama administration here, of course, dealt with H1N1 and wrote a whole playbook on um, pandemics and how to deal with a pandemic, um, which, you know, as governments do, summarily was dismissed and thrown in the trash. And and then they had to act like they started all over again from scratch when an actual pandemic came. Mm-hmm. Um, your audience may or may not be aware of this, but the um, uh, original uh, virus, uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which is what COVID-19 uh, uh, you know, uh, morphed from, mm. and we now call COVID-19 or this coronavirus, um, actually was first studied in, I wonder what year you think it was. What was the first time that SARS-CoV-2 was ever um, talked about? Oh, right. So, so I read something about uh, there being nine years worth of study on this. I'm going to guess 2010. Yep. And you're, you're close. It's 2007. Right. Um, so it's been a long time that we've known about SARS-CoV-2 and the potential yeah. for it to morph into a pandemic and all. And that doesn't mean that, you know, it, it actually came to pass and that we had the systems in place to deal with a pandemic, because that's what really this pandemic has exposed is that our systems are not ready for not right. only the pandemic, but for an overcrowding of the hospitals and collapse of that kind of, you know, healthcare systems and, you know, all those things. So a lot of stuff's come to light. But yeah, these are black swans, right? I love that you said, you know, who could imagine a black swan possibly coming, you know? Um, <laughs> we always often say, like, uh, what if, sadly, uh, planes were to fly into, you know, big buildings or towers as a way of terrorism, um, and then it happened? Or what if um, somebody were to build a nuclear plant on a fault line near the coast? Japan, we're looking at you. Um, you know, and then that happened, right? Um, so these are black swans. And um, uh, they're the idea that, you know, there's a wild card. Mm-hmm. So in, in scenario building and foresight work, we do deal with these. As I mentioned earlier, you don't often see them come up, but it can be one of the most important parts of the work. And we often like to say that one person's black swans is another person's good scanning or good trend analysis and pattern building. Because if you're really doing a, a, a rigorous and robust job of looking at all of these trends and possibilities, and as I said, those patterns, you're not going to be caught unaware by these things and they won't be black swans to you anymore. They'll be a part of your foresight work. We have um, a colleague that works for in foresight in the uh, United Nations 
and he coined a new term, black elephants, which is right. a mashup of black swans and the elephant in the room. Right. And, it's, and it's the idea that, oh, black swans, you know, crazy things that could come to pass, um, you know, low probability, but high impact. If they were to happen, it's going to be a tremendous impact on systems. And combine that with the elephant in the room. Everybody knows it's there, but the leaders don't want to acknowledge it until it comes to pass. So that when this black swan happens, they go, oh my goodness, who saw that coming? When they had heard about it over and over again, as you and I said, David, you know, I told you so, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what foresight work does is it allows us to, in advance, test out these black swans, but of course, just also the normal trends and, and transformations and disruptions, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And to say, what do we need to do to be prepared for them? Uh, so that we're not taken unawares. The pandemic may still come, it may still disrupt our, disrupt our systems, but will we be ready for those things? And so of course, you know, Tlaib wrote the, uh, the famous book, um, uh, Black Swan, some people call them discontinuities. We often call them wild cards. They're an important part of foresight work as well. And now, as you said, here we are in the midst of one of them. What do we do and where do we go from here? Yeah. Um, now, as we look to, to wrap up, Frank, I know that uh, from experience that strategic foresight takes time and practice to uh, immerse in the mindset, the tools and the techniques. And so how do you recommend the listener explores this for themselves? Well, there's a lot of different ways you can. As a matter of fact, um, you know, not to make this a commercial at all, but you know, we, we offer the Future School offers um, you know, three-day, six-month, two-day uh, courses in foresight, using design and foresight, how to learn foresight tools to dip your toe in the water. And all, of course, we do a lot of consulting in that. But there's other organizations that offer those kinds of, um, you know, courses and training well across Europe and across the world. Um, as I said, we, you know, done this worldwide. As a matter of fact, during the pandemic, we probably done more training than we've ever done before. But uh, the future school uh, ecosystem continues to grow. Um, one of the best ways that we found that organizations, um, instead of saying like, yeah, I'm on board, I want to build an entire competency, let me do what the Walt Disney Company did. <laughs> but, um, oh yeah, uh, we don't have the budget of a Walt Disney Company, I just remembered. <laughs> <laughs> Is, you know, to be able to just uh, do some short trainings, maybe, a, you know, a half day, um, a full day, or if you've got the time for it, you know, a multi-day um, training to dip the toe in the water of foresight, of trend scouting and hunting, of pattern building. Um, there's ways that we, you know, you heard David and I, um, and I'm speaking to the audience now, talk about um, scenario building. And it sounds like it can be this monstrous task and it can take a long time. It can, um, but there's methods that we've built that actually allow people to scaffold scenarios just in a day or two. Um, to be able to at least build the scaffolding um, of these ideas and um, to look at uh, these worlds, um, maybe uh, quick and dirty, so to speak, um, but still very useful. And so um, those are some of the ways to, to be able to do it. There's lots of information on the internet that people can look up and read about foresight um, to differentiate it from forecasting um, to get away from the idea that foresight is just glorified forecasting. Mm -hmm. It's a different way for us to model strategy and innovation and all of these different processes in our organizations. But yeah, there's a tremendous amount of information out there that now that you've heard about this, it'll be like the red car that you drive off of the, the lot. You thought you were the only one that had it detailed the way it was and you drive up to the stoplight and you're next to two cars that look exactly like it. You won't be able to stop seeing foresight now that you've heard about this. And there's a lot of information out there and, and, and tremendous ways to learn. Yeah, and I, I, I'll add there, Frank, that, uh, that it leaves a, a lasting impression. I mean, we're talking about stuff that, uh, that you know, working together nearly 10 years ago. Uh, yeah. And uh, it, really, it really does move you both in terms of, uh, of, uh, of interest and, uh, and then of implications. Uh, and I think it's, that it's, it's stuff that never leaves you, which, uh, which, uh, which can't be said for, for a lot of, uh, of training. Uh, but, but Frank, this is your opportunity to be gratuitous with, uh, with uh, um, how people can, uh, um, can see what you do and what Kedge can do. So if people wish to connect with you and follow your work, how can they do so? Oh, well, I'm so glad you asked. We just launched our new website a couple of weeks ago. And uh, the old one wasn't bad, but the new one, man, that's 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 the uh, the creme de la creme. <laughs> and so um, there is, a, you can look on our website. It's the futures, a multiple future, not just one, but an S at the end of futures school. So you'll see two S's back to back. The futures school dot mm -hmm. com, 
And um, when you go there, you'll be able to, um, if you want to, sign up for our regular newsletter, our magazine called Reframe Magazine, which is loaded with all kinds of good stuff. It's got our regular podcast, the Wicked Opportunities Podcast. Um, that Yvette, of course, who is my business partner, Yvette Montero Salfatico, who worked for the Walt Disney Company for 13 years and was uh, doing uh, Foresight and Futures in parks and resorts. And then, of course, came and joined uh, uh, the parent organization, Kedge, mm -hmm. and the Futures School, our learning ecosystem. And then we worked with Disney. Um, and there at uh, thefutureschool.com, you'll also be able to see all of our programs and our courses, our partner courses. Um, we're building asynchronous courses, but we have in-person crossing my fingers that one day we'll be back in person again. We do actually have an in-person program, our flagship offering planned for Austin in October. Um, but uh, we said, we got really bold and said, it's time to go back out. And then the United States started getting worse again. So we'll see if that still happens. But if it doesn't, it's already also been planned to be in October online again. So we would love to have you join us. We have people from all over the world in this programs, but we only seat 30 at a time. I'm in our flagship program. And um, there you can also find you know resources for reading. We have our 115 page guide to the natural foresight framework, which is the framework we developed years and years ago that you used and the companies around the world are using that you can get for free. If you go to the website, you can download the guide to the Natural Foresight Framework by visiting the website. And there's so many other resources on there. I couldn't begin to tell you. You'll have to search for yourself. Wonderful. And we'll put links to, uh, to those in the show notes as well. Uh, but Frank, all's left to say is thank you very much for being a guest on the Learning and Development Podcast. I mean, I can't be uh, happier that you invited me and uh, what a great opportunity to speak to your audience. and. Um, uh, I hope everybody uh, gets super excited. Like you can tell how passionate I am about foresight. I hope somebody finds that same passion too. I think you had actually mentioned earlier that, you know, you sort of like felt like this was something that, you know, oh my gosh, you know, I've always sort of thought this way. Um, I guarantee there's people listening right now who are like, yes, that, but I didn't know it was an actual discipline. And uh, I invite you to pursue the passion and the way you've already felt about this. There's a whole discipline awaiting for you who already felt that this was the way you already thought or the way that you wanted to act. And so David, again, thank you so much for the opportunity. Thanks, Frank. It seems strategic foresight is likely to become more in demand since the world has been challenged with COVID-19 and anything that we as L&D can bring to help our organizations prepare for unknowns will be of huge benefit and it's also incredibly interesting work. If you'd like to get in touch with me, perhaps to suggest topics you'd like to hear discussed, you can tweet me at David in Learning and connect on LinkedIn, for which you'll find the links in the, in the show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, perhaps to suggest, if you'd like to get in touch with me, perhaps to suggest topics you'd like to hear discussed, you can tweet me at David in Learning and connect on LinkedIn, for which you'll find the links in the show notes. And goodbye for now. <laughs>